Welcome to The Lead, a podcast about how to get ahead in the media industry from the people who did. I'm Caroline Odom. In this episode, I'm excited to share a conversation with Josina Guess, managing editor of The Bitter Southerner, a digital publication that shares stories from the American South. Born in Alabama, raised in Washington, D.C., educated at Earlham College in Richmond, Indiana, and having lived in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania before moving to Comer, Georgia, Josina's writings on faith, race, family, violence, activism, and place led her to apply to the Bitter Southerner as assistant editor in December of 2019. Less than a year later, she's managing editor of the publication. Josina and I talk about her path to the Bitter Southerner and her journey of becoming a writer. Josina also reminds us of the purpose and value of long-form and reflective writing as an invitation to slow down, observe the world around us, and seek different perspectives. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode is produced by the Cox Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership at the University of Georgia's Grady College. To learn more, go to grady.uga.edu slash coxinstitute. Additionally, in response to the COVID-19 pandemic, this episode of The Lead was recorded over Zoom. Thank you for your continued patience with any audio imperfections. Now, here's The Lead. Welcome to the show, Josina. How are you today? I'm good. How are you, Caroline? I am doing really well, and I've been really looking forward to this conversation. When preparing for it, I wasn't really sure where to begin because you have a pretty broad background, but you joined The Bitter Southerner as assistant editor in December of last year, so I'd love to start with what got you there. Um, First, what led you to writing, and then what led you to writing and editing for The Bitter Southerner? Sure. I'd be happy to answer those questions. So what led me to writing? It's funny. I think um, I was remembering probably like one of my first like memories of writing is sitting at my mom's desk with a pen and like making fake cursive and just doing it like filling the whole page with fake cursive and showing my mom what I wrote. So I like I I remember being a pre-writing writer and I and I kept journals all through my childhood and teen years just writing by hand and stuff. And I think I didn't realize that I had such great teachers. I went to Washington, D.C. public schools and and I learned how to write. I didn't really think about being a published writer, I think, until I was in my 30s. I have this other funny memory of when we lived. So I lived in Philadelphia for a while. I had I worked as a children's minister and I wrote for like the church newsletter and I wrote some piece that was pretty deep and complex, kind of not what you would normally have in a church newsletter. And this old lady, she wasn't that old, but anyway, she was an elder, I should say, in the church was like, you missed your calling. And she said it to me like almost like a scolding. And I felt so um, sad because I was like 26. And I thought, surely at 26, I have not missed my calling. But I had two kids at the time. I got married young and I was working at the church and I felt 26 is not too young to like start becoming a writer. But I think it really wasn't until I was about 30 that I, I kind of started just writing. Um, I started this little blog called Josina's Kitchen Table and I had intended it to be like just a food blog um, or just cooking with kids blog. But it ended up, of course, being these intersections of race and war and memory and all these other things besides food. So then I just kind of I be- began submitting stories to small 
publications that were obscure and didn't pay and you know just kind of gradually worked my way into into writing more and and kind of came in through like Christian publishing but then kind of into more mainstream stuff then um in terms of how I came to the bitter southerner I my husband and I moved with our four kids to Georgia in 2011 from Philadelphia and um, we lived in an intentional community where we worked with refugees um, called Jubilee Partners here, uh, here in Comer, Georgia. And, and that was really, really when I started in my spare time uh, pursuing writing and finding time to write and recognizing that that writing really felt like the work that I wanted to be doing. And in particular, I, I hadn't really lived in the South except for I was born in the South. I was born in Alabama. Um, you know, my uh, parents... Were an interracial couple in the late 70s in rural Alabama, and they decided not to stay. Their, the challenges felt too great, and um, so they moved us to Washington, D.C., and that's where I grew up. Um, and D.C. is kind of like, it's also kind of a southern city, but it's also, it's its, its own thing. But, but coming to rural Georgia kind of tapped into those, the ideas around what it must have been like for my parents to decide not to raise our family in the rural South. And it made me think a great deal about working with refugees from war from other countries and thinking about the ways that we and our own country had uh, a lot of internally displaced people because of, you know, the racialized terror of um, the South in which, you know, many Black people were forced to leave rural communities. And so all of those things were kind of swirling just in the air. And as I was writing and paying attention, I just felt like, you know, I, I really want to be learning more about this landscape and, um, and its history and my own, the intersection of my own family's history with that, with this landscape. So, yeah, so, so, so when I left Jubilee Partners, I'd gotten a small writing grant to kind of pursue those concepts of, of how can there be healing in the South? And it was towards the end of that cycle that I was trying to figure out what am I going to do next? So I was kind of looking for a job and wondering about a job. And um, I still remember just scrolling Instagram and seeing that the Bitter Southerner was hiring. When I read the job description, I was like, oh, that's, that's me. That, that's me they're looking for. I better, if I don't apply, they won't find me. And I don't know, I got really excited and I'm um, yeah, so I, I got the job in November and started in December. And so it's been, it's amazing that it really has, it hasn't even been a year yet, but it's felt like, a, I mean, 2020, it's been, <laughs> feels like time doesn't make sense this year. But yeah, it's, it's been good and I feel thankful and I feel like I'm basically able to continue kind of digging into some of those questions that I've um, wanted to dig into and, and not in, not only in myself and my own family's story, but with, um, with other, other people's stories intersecting. So. Well, I would agree that it certainly has been quite the year so far, but what's really amazing about your now almost year at the Bitter Southerner is that you are now managing editor. I would love to hear about that transition and how that role as managing editor versus assistant editor looks differently for you. Um, yeah, well, I think uh, it's, I mean, mostly it's, it's being able to see a story through from beginning to end, you know, from pitch through editing and, and kind of finalizing everything. Um, and so it's, it's an amazing 
thing to think about how many people, you know, want to write something and then being able to read through those pitches or read through all the ideas and figure out not only do we say yes to it, but when do we run it? And then if we decide to run it, how do we run it? What, what changes need to be made? What, what can run as is? How do different stories complement one another? It's just, it's a, it's a really fun um, challenge of trying to, you know, pull the pieces together of, um, and communicate, uh, you know, with the writers, communicate within the team, communicate with photographers and, you know, sending out contracts. There's all these different kind of behind the scenes pieces. I mean, that's the thing I really think even from the beginning, I felt really, you know, like every team member is valued and has a contribution, you know, to, to kind of what, what we're running and stuff. So I, I felt like even from the start, I was involved in those decisions and thinking about that. And so now I'm just kind of taking, I guess, taking more leadership in that. Now that we've talked a little bit about your role as editor, I want to go back to Josina, the writer, and talk about a piece that you published in The Bitter Southerner this past summer. So The Bitter Southerner's focus is to uncover the American South and all of its truth and complexity, and the piece from this summer, The Sound and the Fury of Jericho Brown, embraces that balance of truth and complexity. This piece tells the story of the poet Jericho Brown and how he reflects on racial identity through his poetry. Um, when this story was published in June, there was a lot going on with the Black Lives Matter movement, protesting, a lot being posted on social media. It was just a very tense cultural moment overall. And in between the tweets and headlines, reading this piece for me really felt like a breath of fresh air, not because it provided any answers to the issues that our country was discussing and continues to discuss, but because it created a space for questions in a way that long form writing does really uniquely. So I say all of that to ask, as journalism students and media consumers, why should we make room for long-form writing in both our consumption and maybe even in what we are creating? I'll start with in our consumption. I think our, um, it, it takes a real concentrated effort to, to concentrate on anything, you know, to finish one thing through and to focus. And I, I think, um, you know, writing that story felt like a privilege to be able to just zero in on, on one person's story, one person's life, and in that singular narrative, um, help the reader and myself as a writer to connect with um, everyone's life and everyone's story. And particularly, um, you know, the, the particular uh, forces that are shaping Black male life in the South. And I think long stories allow for a little bit of um, just breathing room for, for people to, to, to go deep and also just like to, to play with language and to, to think about structure and to not just think like, okay, let me just get the facts down, but to think of it as constructing something um, hopefully beautiful, you know, that would, that would impact a person. And I think it's interesting because I think, you know, poetry is like super distilled, you know, it's like so tight, but it can also be long. Um, and I think if you're thinking about writing long form, I think people should still approach it kind of with a, with a poet's eye and in, in not wanting to just make it long for the sake of being long or filling it with lots of cliches or fill it or padding, you know, you can kind of tell when something's been padded, you know, but, um, but for the length 
to be really purposeful in, in showing, like which, what she said, the complexity of, of something. And then why should a writer want to write long form? I feel like our culture is really training us to stop paying attention, to really stop paying attention to, um, to anything, to the people around us, to, to people's ideas, you know, especially if you already think you know um, what you already think you know about any group of people or person. So I feel like it can push curiosity, like curiosity will, will compel you to, to want to actually keep going and asking questions. Speaking of curiosity, I'm curious about the more personal writing that journalism students don't really do much. Although we write a lot, we really write about ourselves and a lot of your writing, whether it's addressing faith or racial identity or a sense of place or the intersection of all of those things is very personal and reflective. And I know I often shy away from sharing or even producing that type of writing. So what is your advice to students who are curious about that more reflective personal writing, but are maybe hesitant to jump in? I mean, honestly, I think that comes from the practice of, of keeping a journal, you know, and so I think, I think keeping a journal for your own sanity and your own sense of, of making sense of the world is a good practice. Um, and then I think, I think the really important thing, whether people are blogging or, I don't even know if people blog anymore, it shows how old I am, you know, just that I even use that word, but, you know, like, I think that the, the balance is that sometimes you write something for yourself, and it really is just for yourself, you just need to write it for you, and I think that's a good habit and a good practice, but then you have to decide, why is this self-reflection helpful for another person, because I think, like, if, if you're willing to be vulnerable, or to admit that you're the anti-hero in a story, like, then that can help another person read and, and think, oh, yeah. And I think that's the thing. If, if someone's writing something and they end up the hero every time, then it gets pretty boring. And, um, and, and most readers won't trust you because you're probably lying. Um, and so I think if, if you're writing something and, um, and you're recognizing the ways in which you're flawed, and, but not also, then it's like you also want to make sure you're not just browbeating yourself or making yourself to be a villain, because that's also lying. And so I think, like, again, like, it's a practice of self-reflection that can then free a reader to go through that process themselves. And so I'd say the first step would be start doing that work, whatever that work is for you, whether, and I think it's especially important, you know, like, I'm biracial, my mother's white, my father's black, and there's a lot of people that would say, well, uh, you know, I'm white, so I can't write about race. And I'll be like, no, that's not true. I mean, you can write about it as you've experienced it, and you can open yourself up to how other people experience it. But I think that there's, um, you know, these ways in which people believe that they have nothing to say about something. And I think what's important to recognize is um, when, when is it valuable to speak into the larger conversation, and when is it valuable to be listening, and when is it valuable to share your perspective and when isn't it? And that's where I can't really, I can't say definitively when we start to generalize um, and or start to assume that, that your own point of view is the point of view, right? And so I think that um, at least being able to admit that even when you think you're being objective, um, that you do have a point of view and that it was shaped and steeped in, you know, class and gender and geography and, um, you know, education, all of those pieces, race, like they, they form your sense of what is normal. And so 
it's a good thing to, to, to pay attention to those things, write on them for yourself and then figure out when and if that writing is, is worth sharing with others. And, and you'll know, you know? <laughs> so yeah, I hope that helps a little bit. I think so. I think that gave some clarity as to why we even write in the first place. Yeah. Right. Cause we want to connect with other people's stories and, and I think we want to grow as people. I hope, you know, Josina, as we close, do you have any final thoughts or anything you would like to add? Just that it's, it, I mean, it was really, I was really surprised and, and humbled and thankful when you reached out to me when you were like, I'm doing a podcast for people who made it. I'm like, what are you talking about? What does that mean? Because like, I guess I'd say to who, anyone who's listening, just go for it. Going back to that moment when I said, when someone told me I'd missed my calling at 26, right? You can just really get down on yourself and think, what am I, especially in your 20s and 30s. It's a hard phase of life because you're wondering like, what am I doing? Is this enough? Does anyone care? Is anyone noticing? You're like, all those questions, you know, they come and they come and they come. And I guess I'd just say like, I want to encourage whoever's listening to know that like, just keep doing the work, keep going for things, trying things. You know, I, I applied for this job literally out of the blue, you know, and it was a stab in the dark. I didn't know anybody. I had never written for the Bitter Southerner. I had no inside connections. You know what I mean? I just, just took a stab and said, I think this is the right thing to do. And so I just would encourage people to just keep doing what seems like the next right thing and, until it starts to come together and it'll, and no matter what it is, you're never going to feel like you actually, I just, yeah, that whole thing of making it, whatever that means, <laughs> you know, I just say you, each day is what you make of it. And so we just keep, keep making it. So that's what I'd say. Thanks for tuning into The Lead and a big thanks to Josina for joining us. I'm your host, Caroline Odom. This episode was produced with guidance from Charlotte Norsworthy, executive producer of The Lead as part of her graduate assistantship with the Cox Institute. To hear from more interesting media leaders, subscribe to The Lead on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at The Lead Podcast. Until next time.